Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, and welcome to Outward for the month of March. I'm Brian Lauder, editor of Outward, and I have a cocktail recipe to share, courtesy of one of my partner's mothers. It's called the Quarantini. Same ingredients as a martini, but with an extra dash of anxiety, and you're allowed to have as many as you need until the stir craziness fades into a stupor. Uh, speaking of mothers that we should be thinking of, uh, I'm Ramon Alam, and I'm thinking of Tammy Taylor. There's uh, a great mm. episode of Friday Night Lights. It's such a throwaway line, but she's calming somebody down, and she says, uh, "You need to get, you need some fresh air in your hair." And I think those are such wise words. I think we all need some fresh air in our hair. So I hope you're listening to this podcast, strolling down the street with your headphones on, six feet away from all of your neighbors. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of The Waves, Slate's podcast about women and gender. And I am coming to you from my apartment in D.C. where I just finished watching what appeared to be a gay landscaping company apply mulch along the sidewalk across the street. I feel like an old like shut in peering through my curtains now every day because it's the only thing I have that's different every day is what I see through my window. So there was a evidence number a a twink and a cutoff T-shirt evidence Mm. B. another guy in an it gets better shirt (laughs) evidence number c the company is called versatool (gasps) and number d i looked it up online and the logo of this company is the silhouette of a fit man topless i presume holding a rake and a hammer so shout out to versatool my local presumably gay but not proven gay landscaping company I have to say that before we jump into the show, there is a uh, Bravo reality show about a queer landscaping company called ba- Backyard Envy. So if you were in, they're called the Man- the Manscapers. But if you are into learning more about queer <laughs> landscaping uh, economy, how check, incredibly check that show out. specific! Yeah, My goodness. Yeah, that's a, a community I don't know much about. So I'll absolutely be watching that <laughs> for sure. So, all joking aside, uh, we wanted to start the episode on a little bit of a serious note by just acknowledging that this is a really fucking scary time. Um, We're recording the podcast today with each of us isolating at home. Um, I know many of y'all are in the same boat, but many others are still out there on the front lines keeping the world turning. Um, It's going to be a hard, sad, lonely couple of weeks and months ahead as we navigate uh, this pandemic. And so we hope that the show can offer maybe a little bit of queer connection and comfort. I'm drawing strength right now from the knowledge that our community has been through worse and that we hold the wisdom and resilience from those experiences in our bones. And I think uh, with that, we'll get through this thing too. Here, here. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. 
Okay, so on today's show, though his name might feel like it comes from 15 years ago, we wanted to take some time to reflect on Pete Boot Edge's historic campaign for the Democratic nomination and the surprising division it inspired uh, within the queer community. Uh, Given that we are all on the record as Pete skeptics here at Outward, we will be joined in that discussion by Brooke Claggett, a gay Pete supporter, to ensure that Fox News style (laughs) fairness and balance uh, is in play as we figure out what uh, the Mayor Pete schism was, was all about. Then we'll be joined by Alfonso David, the president of the Human Rights Campaign, to discuss the resonances between the AIDS crisis and COVID-19 that so many of us have been feeling, as well as uh, how our community is uniquely impacted by the current pandemic. Uh, And then, of course, we'll have our usual PNPs and updates to the gay agenda, this time focused on how to bring a little joy to your quarantine. With that, Ramon? Yeah, we're going to start the way we normally do with our nod to our fictional foremother, Bette Porter's seminal provocations exhibit. We talk about Mm. what we as hosts are feeling proud of or provoked by right now. Christina. I have a pride this month. So my pride was brought to my attention and indeed the attention of the queer universe by someone named Tabor Bain on Twitter, who earlier this month uh, shared a photo of a woman with a butch haircut uh, wearing a U.S. public health service uniform work shirt and a lanyard of keys around her neck. And the commentary that Tabor provided was, first relief I've felt on the U.S. COVID-19 response is the CDC posting this picture from their emergency operations center showing there is at least one lesbian with a keychain neck lanyard that jangles when she walks on the job. I was so proud to see this photo, in part because I just love to see gender nonconforming people and queer people out doing things because we're everywhere. Uh, I know I talked about my favorite pharmaceutical <laughs> commercial on a recent on a recent episode uh, that just has a random butch woman on there. I like seeing random butch people sprinkled throughout life. Uh, and so a bunch of queer media outlets covered this adorable person um, and said that she was assumed to be a lesbian. But I just found out today through some social media stalking that we have a mutual friend, and I can confirm that uh, Jen Bornman is queer. Uh, she's a commander in the U.S. Public Health Service. She has also been deployed to Liberia for the Ebola epidemic, as well as a couple of natural disasters and shootings. Um, so she's a real queer to be proud of. And she responded to the attention that she had received, right? And I thought, like, her response was so great. Like, she just seemed somebody who was not only capable and reassuring for being capable, but also funny and had a sense of humor about it. Totally. Mm -hmm. And it just felt good to see butch competence (laughs) being recognized. (laughs) She reminds me, I think my personal emotional response to this picture was... Uh, amplified by the fact that she reminds me of a younger version of my doctor, who's also a butch dyke. And I just imagine that she has like very calm and steady hands. She has a great haircut, uh, which I think we should all give our thoughts and prayers that she's able to maintain it at this time when probably a lot of barbershops are closed. Um, So thank you to Jen Bornman for your service. (laughs) Mm -hmm, And I'll just end mm -hmm. with a little wisdom from her Twitter feed. The best ways to calm fear are to breathe and be informed, she said. So take that advice good advice good advice brian how are you feeling this month 
Um, you know, I am also feeling proud. Um, and I'm specifically feeling proud about the way that our queer nightlife party spaces, party promoters took this seriously, uh, the, the COVID uh, pandemic seriously and canceled those events with relative quickness. Um, I think within the community, we have an under, sort of understandable urge to want to gather and sort of be joyous in times like this. Um, and I think it is, it was probably initially very hard um, to understand how serious this was and how, how much we really needed to cancel those, those kinds of gatherings. Um, and I'm thinking of, you know, small things at bars, big things like the black party, which was coming up here in New York. Um, and, and a couple of weeks, um, you know, over the past week or so, all of those folks have canceled those things, uh, dealt with, you know, losing all kinds of investment, uh, for the good of the community. And I think that is to be, praised um because it it it's hard it's just hard to do it and it's it's i know i personally uh really wanted to gather with folks and and as it became clear that that just wasn't safe um it it was the right thing to do so i'm proud of that i'm also proud uh sort of on the same token that we are adapting to digital options for for togetherness i don't know if you all have seen but a lot of a lot of these same party promoters and djs are now doing live stream sets so if you this weekend kind of want to gather with a bunch of queer people online and and still uh quote unquote rave um you you can do that all over the place there's a lot of i think just look up basically where you would where you would normally go out and they are probably doing something on Facebook or Instagram live, that kind of thing. Um, and you can still participate that way. And I think that's, it's really exciting to see how we moved from, you know, losing our physical spaces to uh, these digital spaces. Yeah, I think I, people, it's really brought out creative thinking in a lot of people. And, you know, it, 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 might, it might sound like a frivolous thing, but I also think, you know, people are a little lonely and a little weirded out, especially now. And, you know, there's even mm-hmm. more desire for community than there might normally have been. And so it's nice to see people kind of think and adapt their thinking and come up with some clever solutions. Yeah, definitely. Ramon, what do you got? Um, I'm also feeling proud. I think that, uh, you know, these are times for, you know, you have to find optimism where you can. Um, but my family has relaxed our familial rules around screen time for obvious reasons. <laughs> and um, so my husband and I and our two boys have been watching this show, Lego Masters, which is a sort of reality Lego building competition. And um, I'm really um, charmed by and proud of this married couple named Flynn and Richard. They are from Oakland, California, and they're just very cute and very good at building Legos. And it's just one of those instances where representation can be so powerful, Um, kind of like our our lesbian friend at the CDC. It's just like, here's a couple of, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, here's like a devoted married couple who are really good at building Legos. And you know, it, there's. I don't know why there's something very heartwarming about watching them do their thing. And also they are really good at building Legos and it really blows my kids' minds and it kind of blows my mind too. And that show has been a real bomb generally just because it's sort of a happy, I mean, what's not to be charmed by a bunch of adults playing with a toy for children, you know? Do your kids have the reaction like, oh, hey, those are gay people building Legos? You know, I think that they, uh, just because it's so much 
of their reality. What, what's funny is that what they said to me is that that couple reminds them of a, some friends of ours who are a lesbian couple, which I think is like such an interesting statement. But I just think increasingly huh. kids and not just kids who have queer parents, it's just of kids in, in or even necessarily kids in our community uh, like New York City, they don't notice stuff like that. They're just like, oh yeah, that's a couple. They're married. You know, they love each other. It's not, it's sort of, it's weirdly immaterial to them. And it's one of the things that makes me so optimistic about the next generation. You know, it's very, it sounds very serious when I talk about it that way. <laughs> no, that's, it's, but it's so nice to have something to be optimistic about. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is. I'll, I'll take it where I can find it, you know? Definitely. Definitely. I'm definitely going to uh, watch some Lego Masters. I think I need a little just, positive creative stakesless entertainment in my life <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You, yes you could definitely do worse than an hour watching a bunch of adults build legos hello it is ryan and i was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com i looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing they were also playing chumba casino coincidence i think not everybody's loving having fun with it chumba casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere even at thirty thousand feet so sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus that's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus on death sex and money we feature interviews with you our community of listeners getting honest about uncomfortable things I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. Our first segment for today's episode is Pete Buttigieg. So on March 1st, after he placed fourth in South Carolina's Democratic primary, our fellow gay, Pete Buttigieg, suspended his presidential campaign. So for the past couple months, we have gotten requests from a couple different listeners um, to do a full segment on Pete Buttigieg. And we thought this felt like a good time and possibly our last time uh, to do a real postmortem on the first major gay candidacy for president, which love it or hate it or love to hate it or hate to love it, most queer people have felt some kind of way about. So for this discussion, we are not going to focus so much on his candidacy, qua candidacy, his strategy and policies, because that feels a little bit besides the point right now. But we want to talk about what it meant for queer people watching his candidacy, what it said about gays and politics, and most importantly, what the responses to his candidacy can tell us about rifts in LGBTQ communities today. So to help us unpack Pete Buttigieg, we are joined by Brooke Claggett, my pal from here in D.C. Hi, Brooke. Hello. How are you? Good. Thanks for coming. Um, So, Brooke, you are or or were, I guess, uh, not only a big Pete supporter, but you were really organizing for him. Um, and I know we know from polls that Pete wasn't supported by a majority of LGBTQ people, which I think was surprising for a lot of pundits who kind of expected more gays to be excited by this candidacy. Did that surprise you as a gay Pete supporter to see so many gays not lining up behind him? I think it surprised me and still surprises me to the extent that there are um, 
gay men who uh, are even viscerally opposed to Pete or have very strong negative feelings against him. It doesn't surprise me in the slightest that he didn't, that he wasn't the first choice for president among gay women. A, a lot of women really think that there ought to be a woman president now. <laughs> and um, we had so many, you know, really pretty superstar candidates that uh, I think it was, it was really difficult. Women just aren't accustomed to having multiple choices of highly qualified presidential candidates to vote for among women. Uh, so that, that, that didn't surprise me very much that the lesbian community wasn't ecstatic about, about his candidacy or didn't feel as if it really uh, spoke to them necessarily. Although I, I would say that I think a lot of people, uh, I do know a, a, a large number of gay men and, and lesbians uh, and other queer people who do support his candidacy. What you're talking about, people making choices based on their identities, has been a little bit, I have felt like that narrative doesn't fully explain people's political decisions. And I have felt like there has been an impulse to say, you know, why aren't women supporting Pete? Well, maybe because they want to support a woman. But if we look at the numbers, I actually wrote a piece about this for Slate. You know, this election has kind of shown once and for all that you can't count on voters to line up by identity groups for the candidate that just shares the most identity markers with them um, because people are motivated by policy and by perception and by a lot of intangibles, what they perceive as electability. But also, I think, because we can have some of the most fraught relationships with candidates who are like us, especially when we're underrepresented in politics and that one candidate has to carry the whole load of whatever underrepresented identity group we're a part of. You you hit the nail on the head when you mentioned that uh, it's a big burden for a candidate who's a member of an underrepresented group to bear responsibility for representing the entire community from which that person comes. And I think Pete really exemplifies that. And I think some of the queer resistance to Pete was not based only on um, policy differences, but on a, um, I guess, on a sort of sense of disappointment that he uh, stuck with the kind of really long tradition of having a presidential candidates be have rather socially conservative lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, what I've noticed more than men and women feeling differently about Pete because they're men or women, I noticed um, younger LGBTQ plus voters f- responding differently from those of us who say went to high school where nobody was out, even though it was like mm-hmm. the, the most liberal high school in the country. Um, so so a, a generational gap, but then also a geographical gap. I, 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 uh, the uh, gay people, queer people that I know in rural areas and mm-hmm. in the Midwest were much more touched and inspired by Pete's presidency than uh, on the coasts and in large metropolitan areas. 
Um, and I think that's just a, it's older people and rural people have, have, have to get along with non-queer people all the time. So uh, um, mm-hmm. we can't, we can't really, or haven't always had the luxury of being as gay as we've wanted to uh, in everyday life. So, uh, and he, he, for a lot of us uh, allowed us to, to imagine moving that, that line a little bit from uh, total lack of participation to uh, at least getting the foot in the door. Brian, I know you, we've talked ad nauseum uh, yeah. for the past like year about this, but um, I know you've had a lot to say about the, the, the divides that his candidacy has exposed. What is the nature of that? What you would say is like the fundamental divide that yeah. the response to his candidacy has shown. Totally. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here just sort of reflecting back on that, on that year. It really was a year, right? Didn't you write your yeah. piece? Like, in, Oh my yeah. God, shh, don't mention it. I, <laughs> Somehow Brooke and I are still talking after that piece. Wrote. <laughs> Christina's famous, famous piece um, that we will not mention. No, I, I, it, it's, I'm reflecting on it and I'm really feeling like, like what, I mean, the divide was there and I'll talk about it in a second, but I think what, what sort of triggered it was this almost this like thing that straight people did where we were like, where they like asked us to kind of respond to or account for Pete. Like Mm. I'm remembering like a specific conversation, like in the office where one of our dear straight colleagues was like, basically like kind of uh, interrogated me about like, as like a gay man about like what, what I thought about Pete and like, what is, you know, isn't Pete great. And, um, and I feel like that pressure and it's, it's speaking to the identity thing that you were talking about earlier, but it's that pressure to like, to kind of, um, yeah, account for him is what got so many people's backs up, um, about it because then I started thinking about it. And I think a lot of people, you know, started thinking about, well, what do I, what do I think about him? Like as a gay person. Um, and that's where you get into this divide that I think, um, Masha Gessen and the New Yorker, uh, maybe articulated the best, but a lot of people were talking about it, uh, beyond that piece between people who sort of have a, a, um, and a, a, a notion that queerness like should sort of have a specific, certainly a specific political agenda and probably like an aesthetic too. And that's the thing that, that got really dicey. And I think we could talk about is like the aesthetic part of it, because I, that's, that's the like coastal versus or urban versus rural thing. And it, like, that's all in there and it's very, uh, yeah, very, very tricky, but, I do think there's a divide that was that did emerge that I think is pretty fair and even if generalized is fair between people who were like well like if I'm supposed to react to him as a gay person he is not exuding anything that gayness means to me right like that is how I personally felt about him I looked at him and I did not see like a, a gay peer um whereas other people definitely did and like and that and the contours upon which we like felt those things um is that divide um but i think it's a really old divide i think it, you know it's it's one that in my my own sort of uh just reading and writing as like a, a gay writer you see going back decades where it's just like art you know does being gay have anything to do with my politics or sort of my my um you know way of being in the world or is it just 
like a demographic fact. And, and, and he felt to me like someone who was very much like, this is a demographic fact and it. Like I would rather not talk about it. Um, and I think, and I think you're right. And I think part of what's so, what's so unsettling about that is, is to think about like, when I think about the next generation of political leaders to emerge, it is hard to imagine a queer person of color emerging from, say, the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, and having the same path towards national office that Pete Buttigieg had simply by, from being a small town mayor. And that's by virtue of not his gayness, but his sort of white maleness and the ways in which he seemed like a, a respectable middle-class person. I feel like all of the Pete Buttigieg v- supporters who I have met personally were um, people my parents' age. And I feel like they were all kind of like imagining some like theoretical gay son bringing somebody like Pete Buttigieg home, you know? And it's like, it's like <laughs> a, diff- a, a very particular kind of respectability politics that feels like it is um it's more about whiteness than about gayness well i think i think though that it's very difficult to imagine somebody from the queer black lives matter um movement emerge on the national scene as a potential uh presidential candidate because it's so inherently countercultural. Of course. And yeah, uh, yeah. we have not yet had a countercultural president yeah. to, to yeah. my knowledge. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, we've only even had two who have ever been divorced, I believe. Right. You don't, you don't um, frequent circuit parties. And if you're trying to run for president, <laughs> you know, right. Not, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when I watch, this is what I've learned about myself throughout this is that I don't feel as suspicious of straight people who conduct themselves and build their lives around the ambition of something like becoming president and who forego the ragers and who, you know, never, never send anybody a nude picture on their phone (laughs) because they're scared it's going to come out someday. Like, But I did fault Pete Buttigieg for it, for the fact that, you know, he said pretty bluntly several times that he was reluctant to come out until he was in his 30s because he felt like it would stymie his political career. Well, that that is a lot harder to do in Indiana than it is in Washington, D.C. I I think you need to, and and for a military person as well, during Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Mm -hmm. But in addition to that, I think my understanding of what, you know, Pete's journey was, was not so much coming out, but letting himself be. In other words, I don't think that he was, you know, dating men uh, on the down low. Right. Uh, You know, I think that's a big difference between just deciding, okay, so here's where I am. I guess I have to live alone and focus on my work because I don't conform is a much different decision from, uh, gallivanting around, or, or just even uh, having a, a experiences that you're not being honest with people. About. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. But I, I will say, being you know at Harvard and being at Oxford, I, I do feel that you know his world was expanded beyond College Town, Indiana. That that our lives, although we grew up in different places, I grew up in small town New Hampshire. You know, and 
our backgrounds are not different enough that I think we could have had completely different ideas of what the world's possibilities were. But it did make me think about the issue of or the question of what are people willing to give up? How much are they willing to camouflage about themselves or deny themselves in order to fit cultural expectations built by people who hate us just to obtain power? You know, I knew a lot of straight people who were very understanding of and touched by his decision to come out late in life and in a very politically palatable way. And to me, that was the thing that turned me off most about him and the thing that made his gayness least legible to me. So my decision about who to support for president is based on policy, but my emotional reaction to the candidates is shaped very much by things like that, like Pete Buttigieg's identity and story, because I share nominally his identity. Yeah, I think it's not, you know, I think it's not dissimilar from what some of the criticisms of Obama, you know, that Obama had to navigate a very particular kind of blackness and had to perform a rejection of like the radical black church when he was still a candidate because that made him more palatable to, you know, whiteness or power. And I think I understand Christina's reluctance to, I mean, obviously if you want to be the president of the United States on some level, you are a sociopath. And I think what Christina is talking about is like a fear of that level of ambition and that desire for power and, Pete embodies that as surely as someone like Kamala Harris, as surely as somebody like Barack Obama. It's like, that's, you're just a fiercely ambitious, like model UN kid who has <laughs> just like charged forward into adulthood. And, and I think Christina's sense may be that Pete, Pete's gayness is, was mitigated throughout his adulthood by a kind of focus group tendency is probably right. Like, I think that probably is how he thinks about himself. I have a, I have an acquaintance who went to Harvard with Pete and uh, when they were, when I, we had talked about his candidacy and what this friend said to me was, I would love to know when Pete first convened the focus group to determine whether he would be called Mayor Pete or Mayor Peter. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, a canny statement. And, you know, frankly, I want that level of insane professionalism in politics because we look at where amateur politics has gotten us right now, you know, especially right now. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Do you think he'll be back? Do you think oh, is he'll he someone you would, he'll absolutely yeah. be back? He's um, my, my in my fantasy when <laughs> Joe is going to adopt his uh, a new call to service uh, plan for national serve increased national service. Um, and starting like the climate core and uh, expanding AmeriCorps um, and the Peace Corps and uh, put Pete in charge of it. And then um, we can, we can move forward. But I, I, I know that he's going to be back both campaigning um, really aggressively for down ballot candidates, uh, both in the Senate and the house. Um, And I understand he has some other plans as well. So he's not, we haven't seen the last of Well, you know, I've I've actually Brooke been won won over a little bit by your um, impression of him as someone who just maybe really did come to their identity late um, and sort of put it aside. And so, what I'm hoping that he can do now is 
maybe take some time to explore <laughs> what what gayness means to him. I mean, and there, there there are signs of hope. I saw an Instagram photo of him having gone to a performance of The Inheritance here in New York, <laughs> uh, yeah. to the gay, gay play. So he's he did that. I mean, I, I would just hope that he takes some time to do that because I think, you know, I don't think it's like a lost cause. I think he just, I think what's unfortunate for him is that he got put into this position of the first, your first gay sort of serious gay candidate without maybe without having had, you know, I, I tend to agree with Christina that I find it hard to believe that at Harvard and Oxford, et cetera, that you would not have found outlets for, for exploring it. But let's just say that's true. I hope that he, can take the opportunity to explore a little bit and like, you know, I don't know, maybe even <laughs> like I would love for him. I don't know. I don't want to get involved in his and Jason's relationship, but I would love for <laughs> him to be able to date around a little bit. Maybe, you know, I, I just think it's, I Ryan, think it, you know, that's not going to happen. You I know, know, I know, I know, but I would never <laughs> risk presidency like that. I know. But anyway, now, I, Charleston is interesting in, in this, discussion very few people had a similar reaction to chastin yeah um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. uh and yet he he also is the kind of person that you would you know your grandmother would just love her grandson to bring home. yeah the more of your neighbors are gay the more of your parents friends are gay the more of your your kids friends are gay i think the more you understand that gay people are just people and uh, are willing to accept them. Yeah, the more your presidents are gay. Yeah, the more your presidents are gay. Yeah, and I, and I think you know a a, um, a a latex suit or a leather harness could really interfere with that. <laughs> For now, bonding, you know, in 2040, so. it's going to be a completely different story. Yeah, in 2040, we'll have our first leather fetish president. Yeah, <laughs> and that and that'll be great. I'll be celebrating with everybody there. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Brooke. This was very cathartic. And um, listeners, we would love to hear your thoughts. You can email us at outwardpodcast at slate.com. Yes, we read your emails and we try our best to respond to them. So please let us know. Thank you, Brooke. Thanks, Brooke. Thank you all. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. All right. So as the reality of the coronavirus pandemic began to set in uh, in recent weeks, a literal gallows humor meme went around the internet. 
The image was of a nonchalant James Franco in a movie about to be hung, and the text read, Straits, I can't believe the government would just ignore an epidemic that threatens thousands of lives. And then at the bottom, gaze, oh, first time. So COVID, <laughs> COVID-19 has been a fast-moving situation, and so by the time we're recording this episode, the government is in fact finally taking serious action to slow the outbreak, albeit after weeks of relative denial and deflection. But the meme's basic comparison between the initial years of the AIDS epidemic and our current public health crisis remains striking, and many of us have sensed resonances between those two experiences. So to help us think through this, as well as to understand how COVID is impacting Acting LGBTQ communities specifically, we're joined by Alfonso David, president of the Human Rights Campaign. Alfonso is an accomplished and nationally recognized LGBTQ civil rights lawyer and advocate, and he's the first civil rights lawyer, the first black man, and first person of color to serve as president of the HRC in the organization's 40-year history. Welcome, Alfonso. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, thank you for being on. So, just to begin, obviously, uh, these are two very different diseases, uh, and the government response to COVID has not been nearly as slow as it was to AIDS, with President Reagan famously not even saying the word until 1985. But with that stipulated, um, I'd love for you just to speak a bit about the similarities between the two situations that you've been thinking about in the past couple of weeks. Sure, sure. Uh, before I, I get into the comparisons and distinctions between COVID-19 and the HIV AIDS epidemic. I want to first say that the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer community uh, has been challenged in the past multiple times um, when we, our community has been faced with challenges. We have had to dig deep and come up with solutions to make sure that we are aggressively advocating for our community. And to your specific question, the HIV AIDS epidemic ravaged the gay LGBTQ community, and it also ravaged uh, communities of color. Mm -hmm. And you correctly pointed out that the Reagan administration did not say anything about AIDS or HIV for quite some time, and thousands and thousands of people died. Now, the comparisons that are being made to COVID are appropriate in some cases and inappropriate in others. Sure. Um, the Reagan administration didn't say the word AIDS or HIV for a very long time. And the HIV AIDS epidemic was in the very early stages really dramatically affecting only gay men and people of color. By contrast, the COVID epidemic or pandemic is affecting everyone. And government is responding in a way that they did not respond to the HIV AIDS epidemic. You know, we often see how government responds when it affects disadvantaged communities. When illnesses, unfortunately, our history proves this, when illnesses and challenges are being confronted by disadvantaged and marginalized communities, the response, unfortunately, has been very different. Yeah. Here, uh, the government didn't respond adequately, I believe, uh, they are responding, but certainly not adequately, but they're certainly responding differently than they did with the HIV AIDS epidemic. When I think about images of community of response to the HIV AIDS epidemic, I think of sort of great scenes of protest and crowd. And I wonder whether, you know, obviously what we understand about um 
The infectious nature of the current situation means that we can't gather in numbers and we can't have those kinds of theatrical protests. So I'm wondering if that's something that is part of the thinking of an organization like yours, that maybe that typically you would rely on people with signs mobilized in, you know, in view of television cameras. Absent the ability to do that, what can organizations and groups of people actually do? Yes, that's a that's a very good point and something we've been thinking a lot about. Uh, organizations like ours can still mobilize people who are unable to leave their homes or um, are concerned about leaving their homes for fear that they may contract the virus. And that's what we're doing. I issued a letter today to the public and to all of our members and supporters outlining for them what they can do, uh, making sure they understand that they still have a role in seizing back our democracy. They still have a role in making sure that our rule of law is respected. They still have a role in making sure that we can support pro-equality candidates for office. Mm. You know, what, what, what scares me more than anything else, because we've learned from our history that when communities are stricken with crises uh, such as this, it is the perfect storm and the perfect opportunity for unethical governments to sort of run roughshod over the rights of vulnerable populations. Right. Um, and you can imagine this happening here where we've been told to all stay in our homes and self-quarantine or uh, not congregate in groups. And the only information that we're getting is from the media and the media is getting their information arguably from government. And I worked in government for 12 years, so I understand the importance of providing meaningful, concrete, accurate information to the public. But really, the public is at the disposal of government because government is just deciding what we know and what we don't know. Mm -hmm. And so what we're doing is making sure people understand their role. They understand their role in advancing a government that can represent the interests of all of us and not just simply some of us. And so right now we're going to be doing telethons. We're going to be engaging with our members. I've held a few press conferences by virtually. I am going to be doing much more of that virtually to make sure that we can connect to people, make sure at their computers they can still engage, they can still get involved and help us get to November where hopefully we will have a new administration. Yeah. Um, you know, another thing that I know that the HRC is doing right now that, that is really valuable um, has been collecting data specifically on how COVID-19 uh, is impacting LGBTQ people, um, which is something that, as, as far as I'm aware, we don't really have specific numbers on yet. So I'm curious if you would like to take us take us through that data and, and, and highlight some of the, the most important findings that, y- that y'all have come to. When you think about, and, and I think this is, this is some, somewhat common, when people think of LGBTQ people, they rarely think about poverty. But the reality is one out of five LGBTQ people currently live in poverty. And that is a striking number, but it's true. That's because the stereotype is of a of like a wealthy uh, a white wealthy gay man, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. That's... The stereotype is a wealthy white man right, who is right. doing well is sort of will and grace, and will and grace certainly represents a, a part of our community, but it is not all of our communities. And and one in five LGBTQ people in the United States that's twenty two percent live in poverty. 
compared to an estimated 16% poverty rate among straight counterparts. Um, that's an important number for us to appreciate as we go through this time. And the numbers get dramatically worse when we're talking about people of color. So the poverty rate for transgender people in the United States is 29% compared to, again, 16% for our straight counterparts. And this is going to have a dramatic impact. The poverty rate being what it is, is going to have an even, is going to be compounded by, by COVID-19. We have been looking at the industries that will be most affected by the pandemic. And those industries are restaurants and food services, hospitals, um, schools, colleges and universities, and retail. And when we look at those, those five industries, we have determined that approximately 5 million LGBTQ workers, anywhere between 5 and 6 million LGBTQ workers work in these industries that are disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. So the 2 million people who work in restaurants, foods, uh, and services, that's 15%, just as an example. And if you talk about hospitals, a million who work in hospitals, that's about 7% of the people that work in that industry. Um, so we have to think about the community that currently lives in poverty and then the community that may be working but still living under the poverty line that are now going to be disproportionately impacted. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be rolling out that data so people are informed about a community that unfortunately often lives in the, the shadows. I wonder if I could, a I wonder if I could ask um, just briefly if you could illuminate for people the name, you know, the nature of your advocacy, like, uh, I guess my question being like, do you, do, does the HRC have a seat at the Trump administration's table? And failing that, if you if you don't have people inside of the seat of power listening to you, are there governments or figures on the state and local levels with whom you have um, relationships and and who you are taking carrying this message to? With respect to the Trump administration, I don't believe that any progressive groups actually have a real seat at the table. Sure. If anything, we've been placated and in some cases lied to about what the Trump administration would be willing to do. So what we've done instead is work in coalition with other organizations. We are a part of uh, a council called the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights. And that uh, leadership conference includes the NAACP and it includes the Anti-Defamation League. It includes organizations from all over the country and we work in collaboration to make sure we're elevating issues that are affecting our communities. In fact, we recently issued a joint letter, more than 200 organizations outlining the concerns that we have for voting and making sure that the rights of residents in this country are actually protected as we go through this pandemic. And that letter was elevated, of course, to the White House and to all policymakers, including at the local level. So we're doing that. With respect to um, working with local elected officials, yes, we have very good relationships with many governors and other executives in states across the country. And we raise these concerns with them. So as they implement their policies, they are mindful of the collateral consequences of doing so without really thinking about disadvantaged and marginalized communities. Is it the case or, you know, is it fair to say that your that the HRC and other 
organizations sort of see the battle, the larger battle, as an electoral one, and that, you know, there's some concentration in institutional efforts towards thinking about November. Yes, yes. This is, we, we have to provide immediate resources, support, and guidance to our communities as we all combat COVID-19. But we cannot lose sight of the fact that we have an election that will effectively define the next several generations of people. If we think about the United States Supreme Court just as an example, and if we are unable to elect a pro-equality candidate, we may actually lose additional seats on the Supreme Court. And that is so critically important because the court interprets the law that defines our rights. And when you are living in a marginalized community, when you are living in a disadvantaged community, you have to look to the judiciary. The judiciary has often been the place that we go to in order to vindicate our rights, in order for us to validate that we actually exist and we matter. If we lose that foothold, uh, it will be a significant and potentially insurmountable challenge for this generation. And so that's what we're fighting for and making sure that people understand this election is significant. We need to activate people around the election. We need to make sure that they understand what is at stake. And we need to provide them with the tools, the resources, and be creative in the day of being virtual <laughs> uh, for, for us to, to really mobilize. And that is a challenge, but is a challenge that our history has prepared us for. Alfonso, I think that's a great place to leave it. But before we do, before we do I just wanted to ask, um, where can our listeners go to find out what work the HRC is doing on COVID, on the election, and on everything else? What's the best place to connect? So there's two places I would I would suggest people go. The first is our website, which is www.hrc for human rights campaign.org. So that's mm-hmm. again www.hrc.org. Uh, folks can also follow us online, uh, meaning on any of the social media platforms. Uh, they can find me at Alfonso David. Uh, and that's both on Instagram as well as Twitter. And we also get a lot of information out uh, through social media so they can use one or all of those resources. All right. Um, Alfonso, David, thank you so much for what you do and for joining us today uh, in uh, difficult circumstances. But uh, but uh, I think uh, hearing what y'all are up to is, is a bright spot and what's going on. So thank you so much. Thank you. I want to... Thank you. I want to thank you all for for hosting this podcast and getting the word out because it's so critically important. So thank you for doing what you do as well. So that's about it for the month. But before we go, we're going to share our gay agenda for this particular moment in time. So it's your quarantine survival guide. Christina, what do you have for us? All right. I did a YouTube Tabata class the other day. Are you guys familiar with Tabata? Is is that a vegetable? I don't even know what that is. (laughs) (laughs) It is a type of workout. I've done it at like a gym before where it's a mix of, the ones that I've been to at the gym have been a mix of like cardio strength and Pilates. This one, not so much Pilates, but you do 20 seconds on with an exercise, high intensity, and then 10 seconds off Mm. where you rest. 20 Mm -hmm. seconds on, 10 seconds off. Um, 
it is some of the hardest workouts that I've ever done. And I've been just cooped up at home. I've been walking around the neighborhood, but I don't run. And so and I really needed cardio to have some endorphins. So I took a YouTube class called a 30 minute Tabata session to burn some serious calories. (laughs) It was taught by a guy named Rainier Pollard, whose family Rainier is spelled R-A-N-E-I-R. I think he's an instructor at Equinox. He had an Equinox shirt on, which we're all boycotting because the head of the company that owns it fundraises for Trump. But don't boycott Rainier because he is very sweet, very funny, clearly a big gay, which I confirmed by then stalking his social media. Um, he sweats a lot, which I find very comforting because I never trust uh, an exercise instructor that looks like they're not doing anything. I'm like, what is this so easy for you? Screw they're getting like (laughs) wiped off between takes. Yeah. Right. In fact, he makes a lot of jokes about how much he's sweating. Um, apparently he's a comedian too, which explains why I laughed so much during the workout. Um, (laughs) and then I found out online as I was stalking him that he holds the Guinness world record for the most burpees in high heels. Which amazing. Won in 2017. Wow. I just That's got goosebumps amazing. from that. <laughs> oh my amazing. God. He has a beautiful body. Um, if I'm allowed to objectify him on sure. this, in this safe space. Um, so the, <laughs> the class I took, or the video was from 2016, and I did it for free. But I am also seeking recommendations from our listeners for ways to exercise at home that I would gladly pay for another queer person to be teaching me how to exercise at home. Um, so yeah, you can find Rainier's video on YouTube. It's called a 30 minute Tabata session to burn some serious calories, or you can just look him up and he has a bunch of videos on his website and stuff. I mean, I feel like we're all, it's funny how much this quarantine or this sort of forced isolation has revealed our natural human desire for connection and like, <laughs> oh my God, yes. and like just the, idea, like, you know, I, I never would have thought that one of the things I would miss if you told me I couldn't leave the house was the ability to go to like a hot yoga class. But apparently <laughs> it's really important to me and I really miss it and I'm like losing my mind. So, yes, by the end of this, maybe we will all have taken Rainier's class enough that we all have incredible beach bodies. So, <laughs> knock on that. Uh, yeah. To make yeah. up for all the extra, all the bread cake. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all the baking. Yeah. Um, my My agenda survival item is uh, that Designing Women is on Hulu. And I I cannot highly recommend enough paying the $5 or whatever it is to not have any ads and to sink into the the very cool pool of this show that was really ahead of its time politically and socially, but is like now from the context of today, very staid and very sitcom-y and very ridiculous. Um... And there's just something so no-nonsense about the sugar baker ladies. I don't know. I find them very comforting as I'm as the world is collapsing around us. I find it very comforting to spend some time with Dixie Carter and Delta Burke. What can I say? I'm gay. And that, Marjorie, is the night the lights went out in <laughs> Georgia. Um, I have to women. say, I think I'm a, I have to hand back my gay license because I've never seen Designing Women. Well, let me just tell you right now, it's extremely comforting. It's really silly. It's totally charming. I highly recommend this. You've got to see this clip that I just quoted. It's like, it's iconic. (laughs) Every drag queen worth her heels knows knows this by heart. Um, 
so my gay, uh, quarantine agenda item is uh, actually it, it's a bit related to what Christina just said about wanting to pay uh, queer creator, queer fitness instructors for their content. Um, one thing that my little family is thinking about doing, and I think is a really great idea for all of us to think about is uh, to think about the queer artists, nightlife service folks um, that we know in our lives uh, and that are now, you know, as we discussed with um, Alfonso uh, adversely affected more so than others by this quarantine and losing their work. Um, Think about, you know, how much we spend on those folks per month and find a way to get that money to them Hmm. anyway. Um, There are a number of uh, spreadsheets for this that are going around where people are putting in their, you know, their Venmos or their uh, PayPal's, that kind of thing. Um, But I really would just uh, recommend that you look to your own communities and just think about those, you know, those, that drag queen, that bartender, um, that, that waiter, whoever it is, um, who you would normally be giving some bucks to, but you can't cause you know, they're not there, yeah. um, and find a way to get them that cash cause they need it. And, uh, you would have normally spent it. So, um, you know, I think it's just a nice thing to do and try to help keep those, that sector of our, of our community, uh, going through this really tough time for them. So that, that is a great call to action. And, and, I've found that it feels good to have concrete things to do, even if they're small, to feel like I am somehow contributing to helping people through this because it feels like there are so few things I can do when I'm just at home, um, not actually seeing people and connecting with people. So I will take your Mm -hmm. call to action on that, Brian. Yeah, that's a good one. Well, it's been great chatting with you guys for this hour. Um, That's our episode for this month. Uh, We hope that you are all hanging in there out in quarantine land. Uh, Please keep sending us your feedback and emails, especially now. We'd love to hear from actual people. Uh, (laughs) You can email us at outwardpodcast at slate.com or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Slate Outward. Thank you to our amazing producer, Daniel Schrader. June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts and the 60% alcohol sanitizing solution that cleanses our souls. Mm. If you like Outward, please subscribe to it in your podcast app of choice. Tell your friends about it. Rate and review the show, especially if it's a good rating and a good review. (laughs) We will be back in your feeds next month from our home makeshift recording studios, probably. Um, I'll miss you guys. Bye, Ramon. Bye. It was great to see you guys. Stay, stay safe. Bye, Brian. Yeah. Bye. Let's uh, let's let's keep in touch. Love you guys. All right. Bye, everyone. Stay gay. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.